People are really fascinated with the stories. That's actually what it really comes down to. Really comes down to those interactions. The stories really make it happen. Hello and welcome to Arts In, also known as AI, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here today with Desiree Moore, who is a video film multimedia artist. So multidisciplinary is something that I've adopted recently. I do mostly work in film and video, but it splinters out from there and I have no control over that. So whatever needs to happen, I'm willing to do. Although a lot of my image making is digital lens-based making. And then when it comes to presentation, I'll do installations that may utilize sculpture or found objects. How did you get to a point in your life where you're a multimedia, digital-based, but not limited by that artist? I guess it all started when I was in junior high and they gave us like a pamphlet about what classes we could take in high school. And although I had never done anything with photography, when I saw that listed on there, I thought, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. And then I was told, oh, you can't do that till you're a senior. So I waited all of those years and then I took photography and that was really my jump into art making. I was always interested in storytelling but I didn't know how to do that until I started with photography. And then just over time, I tended to work in linear progression. So if I had a body of photography work, it would be put on the wall in a chronological manner. And then someone eventually said, you should just use a video camera. Mm. I did, and then I haven't made a photograph since. Wow. Yeah, I'm working on all kinds of things. I've always have projects in different phases. So I have projects that are sort of in incubation stages, I have projects that are actually being sort of produced, and then I have projects that are ready for installation. Well, what you did for Creative Canellas had to do with sort of what it means to be female and Mm -hmm. how female is defined by what's seen and what's manipulated and being seen and... Yeah, that's definitely the content of of all of my work. It's sort of how it starts and what I keep in mind while I make the work. I'm really interested in the individual experience of their own femininity. And I use myself as an example, but I also talk to my mother. I talk to my friends that are female and try to understand their perspective. How do we react to the public expectations or our society's expectations, as well as how we internalize all of those things in private settings. So we may perform for the public, but do we also start to bring that home when we're alone with ourselves? And does all of that performing start to whittle away at our true identity? So it's really complex and it's something, you know, I'm, I deal with, which is why I'm interested in the topic, but it's also something we don't really talk about or, or I haven't been in an environment where we openly talk about those things. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested in doing that. I'm interested in recognizing all of the versions of ourselves we may create. Also, we're asking, do we know what our true identity is? Like, do we know who we really are? I think it's definitely not static. You know, in one scenario, our reaction may be totally different than another scenario, or we may even think we would do a certain thing or act a certain way. And then when it comes down to it, we actually do the opposite. 
And so I think it's acknowledging what we do and why we do it that is interesting. In film theory, they talk about deep character. So a character that makes decisions based on their subconscious and they don't even know why they're making that decision. But afterwards we can pick it apart and try to figure out maybe why. So I'm interested in looking at those things. I'm interested in looking at why we do the things we do, even if we don't know why. So how do you do that with a camera or video or a script or? A lot of different ways. So my preferred method is, it comes from montage theory, which is how we affect an audience by the visual images we portray in a particular order. So what that does for their psyche or for their psychological state. So I use that very specifically. So for example, I may present something very beautiful and lovely and tactile in one frame, and then in the next frame, I'm going to show something that is maybe grotesque or abject. And I'm developing my character in that way, but I'm also developing my character in front of the viewer, mm -hmm. who then has to reconcile, I thought that image was beautiful just a moment ago, but actually it's making me feel that it's grotesque now. Mm -hmm. And so we have to sort of battle back and forth with, why did I think it was beautiful? Why do I think it's gross now? So how do you reach your audience as a filmmaker? I've had people tell me that it can be really hard to really get into my work, mm -hmm. that it takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that expectation that a viewer has to sit and wait to consume my work. But I use a lot of color and I use a lot of reference to pop culture, historical pop culture and things like that. And I think those are little portals to get into my work, even if you're not sure about like the multi-layered dimension of the gaze or gender identity or any of that. You can insert through those other visual cues. It's an interesting to me, you know, because I think probably more now than ever with just the prolificness of video, you know, to sort of slow down and, and remind myself that the storytelling capacity of it is much more interesting and complex than maybe how you consume it most of the time. Right. And, and that is something that I have to try to get across in the classrooms when I'm teaching because a lot of us are used to consuming them in very simple short format with a very specific meaning and there's not a lot of wiggle room to digest or to form a story or or content on your own. I think we want to assume that plot drives a story but I think it's actually character drives a story. Mm -hmm. So we don't need these big moments to happen. It is the evolution of the character over time or in a very small moment of time that really drives story. And, and that's really where I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. how, how is a character, what makes them them? What makes us who we are in relation to the culture we grow up in, or even the household we grow up in? And how many of those things are absorbed and accepted without question? And how many of those things do we create 
or ask a question about or try to change in us. A lot of times it's not exactly my intent or my story that I put into the work, Mm -hmm. but they have their own story. Mm -hmm. And I love that. For me, that's the best because it means I've created something that is tangible enough for them to get into and and to understand in their own way, but ambiguous enough for them really to make it a part of their their own history and their own story. And so it's not just me saying this is how it is, but this is a framework of maybe how it could be. With digital technology, there's so much so much is changing so quickly. There's, you know, new formats, new cameras, new everything all of the time. But in a way like that doesn't matter because that's not what communicate your story. Mm -hmm. So no one ever walked out of a film and said, wow, that camera they used really made that an awesome experience, right? We walk out and we talk about the story. So it could be done with a handheld camera. It can be done with an iPhone. It's how you do it. So I try not to get bogged down with the technical, but it's fun. You know, what's really fun is taking something that's designed to do one thing and doing something totally different with it. Give me an example. Um, so there's this uh, tool, it's like a plugin for post-production, it's called Twixter, and its purpose is to create slow-mo footage out of something that wasn't shot with that purpose. Mm-hmm. So if you apply it to footage that really doesn't quote-unquote work with the plugin, so for example, if you shoot like uh, water coming out of a, a hose, and then you try to slow it down with this footage, it actually makes the water turn into like these three-dimensional like blobs and mm. it looks really animated. Mm-hmm. And no one would use that mm-hmm. in their film because it just doesn't look right. It doesn't look right. like water. It looks like something else. There's all these digital artifacts that occur. But when I was playing around with it, I noticed that and I really liked it. I thought it was this weird possibility. I do a lot of post-production. I spend most of my time Mm -hmm. on the computer Mm -hmm. in Premiere, messing with stuff, just changing things around, actually working on a film I shot two years ago, Mm. (laughs) and I still haven't haven't finalized it, and I'm changing everything around. It was originally shot as a narrative, and basically I don't like it. I just don't like it. Mm -hmm. So now in the editing room, I've told myself, this film is going to be based on editing. Like, that's what's going to make it a work of art. Mm -hmm. And so I've totally deconstructed the narrative. I switched everything around. And now it's really a work of editing. Mm -hmm. You can write something. It's one thing. You film it. It's something else. And then you edit it, and it's something else. What you film does not have to be what you edit. You can totally change all of that around. It can be something new. So generally, though, you start with a script. Yes. And do you do storyboard or...? Yeah, I don't use a lot of dialogue. Yeah. (laughs) I prefer a gesture over Uh dialogue most of the time. I do format it sort of like a script, just so that if I'm working with a crew of people, it's a language that we can all understand. Someone said it's really almost reads like a fiction, like a fiction novel or something when I write scripts, because I describe how I want that moment to feel, because that's really important when we don't have any dialogue. I start there, and then I'll create a shot list, essentially. I'll have shots that I know I really, really want. And then I'll get with a director of photography and then I'll collaborate on everything else with them. 
but typically I do sort of control how the film looks and I have certain things in mind. Although I do change a lot on set. I'm one of those people where I'll be like, I know we're supposed to move on, but now that we're here, I wanna try this other thing. And that's really important to my process. Back in the day, <laughs> it was so challenging and difficult to make film yeah. video. And now it seems like it's not so hard. Partly because I think the technology has made it much less expensive. Yes, but I think it's still as difficult. So, you know, when always you plan a film, you're like, oh, it's going to take two days, no problem. It's going to be awesome. I have everything figured out. And then you get on set and it's going to take four days. Right. And everything goes wrong and it's right. hot and the actor doesn't show up. You know, we left some equipment behind and now someone has to go get it or it rains. You know, all of those variables are really exhausting, <laughs> but it makes, I mean, it makes its own story. It's so stimulating to see <laughs> such a young person who has such a body of work already in a media that I, I think is challenging to work all the time in and challenging to get in the door and challenging to get funding for. And yeah to pull the crew together. And a lot of times I'm, I'm bartering favors. You know, you do this for me, I'll do that for you. Or I tell someone, you know, I can't afford this right now, but can I do it in installments? You know, I wanted to show a film at a drive-in and I just went to the owner and I said, I know you probably don't do this, but this is my dream. I want to do this. How can I make it happen? And, you know, she was taken aback, but she was like, I guess if you want to, you know, we can do it on this day. And this is what you need to make it happen. She's like, I can't help you at all. So I think it's just a tenacity for wanting to see this vision come to life and not letting it go and not letting anyone prevent me from doing that. I've really been dedicated to showing my work in an installation format. So Skyway was a really big step. I had two films at the Ringling Museum. One film was very was a long one that took a lot of work. It was called Over and Under and Through, and I still love it today. And then another film is very different, and it's funny because they were side by side. A very structuralist film where I slowly zoom into a scene over eight minutes. That was a great experience, and it sort of made me get serious about having my work in an installation form. Then I was awarded the grant uh, with Creative Pinellas, and I could either finalize a work that I'd already been working on and show it on a screen, or I could do a project I'd been thinking about for a long time, but I hadn't done because I was afraid. And I thought, you know what? Let's just do it. Let's mm -hmm. just take this opportunity and use it for just that. Let's take a risk. And so I did this work that had two projections going that were bounced off of mirrors in one space. And so even though we only had two visual images, we had five to look at in the room because of the mirrors. And I got really great responses from it. And I realized I can do this. I can build pedestals. I can figure out the distance from a projection to a mirror, to a wall. I can do math, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I did a show at Kunst House mm -hmm. in Tampa, Seminole Heights. And for that, again, I thought, let's just do something crazy. I want to stack 60-pound TVs on top of each other, and I want it to be seven feet tall. Mm. <laughs> 
And so I hired two people to engineer this thing to hold it up. And they did a great job. Where did you get the 60-pound TVs? <laughs> so I had them. So uh, a friend of mine got them. And, and actually, I have, much, I have many more. And they're all in my garage. I, I, I need to ask, are they the old-fashioned? The yes. big square TVs, right? Uh-huh. With the big tubes in them? Yep. And they're huge. But I had seven that were all exactly the same. And I just, I, I had an idea. And I just... I thought, let's be uncomfortable. Having, I guess, having a little bit of that ambiguous nature to the work or allowing that to stay in there, it opens it up even more for interaction. Because I'm always thinking about the viewer. When I think about how my images are arranged in the editing and post-production, I am thinking about how they are read from image to image. I'm thinking less about the story mm-hmm. or the narrative and more about how what these two images next to each other mean. Audience is super important in my, in my solo work, but also in my collaborative work. And that interaction, whether it be physical interaction or whether it just be sort of a intellectual interaction. I'm in a collaboration called Radar Art with two other women. And how that got started was we were all a part of an artist residency in South Carolina. And so we met there. We were there for six months. Wow. So we had long a long time yeah, to, to get to know one another and know each other's work. While we were there, interestingly, we did never work together. But it was maybe a year later, uh, one of the women, Anna, called me and said, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing. Do you want to do it with me? Like, sure, let's do it. And so the thing was a performance on a lake in Minnesota during February. Oh, cold. Yeah, but we did it and it was fine. But we stayed with our friend who was also at the residency, Robin, for that. It was like a weekend. And while we were there, we came up with this idea, barter boat. And Robin is a sculptor. She's a fabricator. She was like, I can fabricate this thing we're talking about. I can make this happen for very little money. And we can at least try out this idea and see how it goes. So she constructed this huge facade that looks like a carnival stand, trading post. And we just put our heads together and thought about what's the best way to get people to interact with us and for us to have fun. And what does that mean? And we started trading stuff. We started asking people to not think about money, but to trade objects instead. And we asked them to tell us, you know, where's the object from? What does it mean to you? Did someone give it to you? Did it come from a certain trip or something? And those origin stories we relay to the next person that gets the object, Mm. which is always in a different city. So we move around from city to city. What kind of venues do you show up at with Barter Boat? So a lot of the events are these almost like light and art events that happen at night in a city. And it's put on by the city itself or a museum or a public arts organization in that city. It's at night typically because our facade is lit up, but we operate in the day too. But we apply a lot of times. We put in an application, write the narrative, all of that. But lately, it's a small world and people talk to each other that Mm -hmm. are in those organizations. Mm -hmm. And lately we've been invited places. Oh, neat. Which has been really excellent. So what are some of the objects that you would barter for at the barter Okay, so we can barter for a receipt 
We can barter for an unused band-aid. We can barter for a keychain. We have traded a dreadlock from someone's head. Letters, poems. We're willing to trade performances. So if someone wants to tell a story or a joke or they want to dance or whatever, we will trade for that. Funny enough, in Baltimore, we had the sixth best jump roper in the United States do a performance for us. And then we trade a package that we have. Packages are objects from another city that we've curated into an interesting collection. And so it might be that all of these objects are together because of color or texture or theme, or maybe there's a funny joke somehow, and then those are given to that person. So how would you capture the jump rope so that you could barter the jump rope for something later? So we can't really barter that performance, yeah. but we ask that they allow us to videotape them oh, okay. so that we have that stuff for an archive. What's crazy is you'd think, oh, over time you might like lose out on your inventory, but we have people who come back. They, they will just spontaneously come up to the boat one night. They'll trade with us. They'll go home. They'll go to their basement or to their storage room. They'll collect all of their objects and they'll bring them back the next day. Mm-hmm. We had several people bring boxes of stuff to us. Oh my us. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One woman gave this box of action figures. She collected them. And there were some really old ones. And she said, this is 25 years of love. Wow. Yeah. So whenever we traded one of those action figures, we would tell the person who we were giving it to. You know, this came from Indianapolis. This woman saved these forever. And this is 25 years of love. What kind of response would you generally get when you share that story? People are really fascinated with the stories. That's actually what it really comes down to. Really comes down to those interactions. Once we tell them a story, people are more willing to part with something too. Mm -hmm. When they realize, oh, someone else is going to get it in another city. Well, maybe I can get rid of my Mm keychain, Or maybe I can get rid of this necklace because that means more to me than it just going into the ether somewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The stories really make it happen like that's I think that's really the crux of it all we use the objects to facilitate the stories Mm -hmm. so do the stories get written down or they're ephemeral yeah so they sort of do exist in this like oral tradition sort of way so generally if I get traded an object and I learn the story then I'm responsible for that object when it gets handed out later Mm -hmm. that way I can communicate that so it's interesting because we sort of get to live vicariously through everyone and so even though we don't keep the objects, we get to, you know, quote unquote, have them for a small moment of time. All right, Desiree Moore, enjoyed this conversation tremendously. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.